Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that might as well be wearing lipstick and a red dress. I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. Together, we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the bonkers of the MCU. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Daredevil. All right, Lonnie, we're a little thin on the ground with four color facts this week. Okay, well, you know, that's fine. We've been through the first season, so you kind of used up a lot of your A material, but that's fine. Yeah, I mean, here in the on the way out, they just stop introducing new stuff. So right. <laughs> we do finally get what I feel like on any other episode would have kind of just been an honorable mention, but here mm-hmm. it's it's one of the one of the focal points. Melvin Potter. Oh, Melvin. I liked Melvin. Uh, Melvin is pretty great on this show. Um, He is a very convenient way for people who should just give up on thinking costumes are stupid (laughs) to go ahead and think (laughs) costumes are stupid. Like, I don't really like that part. We'll get to it. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Melvin is great. And he is a good excuse for a guy who is a blind attorney. To also have armor. Right. <laughs> you know, for punching dudes. Yes, but. yes. Mm-hmm. So in the 616, Melvin Potter is a supervillain. Okay. Or at least a costumed criminal known as the Gladiator. Mm-hmm. He's a leftover from the weirder and more whimsical 60s Daredevil, and you can tell by his origin. Mm-hmm. He's a costume designer who decides he's better than any superhero and builds a set of armor to augment his skills as a martial artist in order to prove his delusion. (laughs) Except, surprise, he's actually pretty damn good at being a costumed enforcer. All right. I mean, Melvin is never going to be a master criminal, but he can wreck some face. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, he's actually been a challenge for Daredevil and and others. Mm -hmm. Now, the bits of 616 Gladiator that filter into the Netflix series basically amount to a connection to Betsy who in the comic books is his therapist. All right, because we didn't get like exactly who or what Betsy was. I was expecting it to be like a fish or a cat. <laughs> well, it may be in Netflix. We don't know. We don't know, yeah. But he does have a therapist who's very important to his ongoing story in the 616, and her name is Betsy. Uh, the other parts of him from the comics that get here are costume design skills. Mm-hmm. And the ability to craft high-tech weapons and armor. Okay. Now, they do nod at quite a lot of his comic book trademarks, such as when he improvises a circular saw blade as a weapon against Matt. Mm-hmm. Because in the comics, he totally wore spinning titanium saw blades on his wrist as a weapon. Okay, that seems, like, really dangerous. Yes, you no, know? and not just to others, which is the point. <laughs> it's also dangerous to you. Melvin is not one of our great thinkers. See, because I have like a couple of rings that have like one has a little bee on it and one has a little daisy on it. And I keep like scratching myself in the face. (laughs) Like if I had spinning blades on my wrists, that would just go bad so fast. Oh, it's worse than you think. (laughs) Just imagine if you bend your wrist. (laughs) Your new nickname is Stumpy. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) But just for real, think about this. You just... If you just bend your hands up, yeah. whoop, 
off yeah. go the fingers. Yeah. So oh no, that's that's uh, you know what I appreciate it. I respect that's serious. You know, like he's obviously very dedicated to this whole process. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just maybe move him up off the wrist onto the back of your hand. There's just there's some ways. I just think that so. maybe well you know everything like it's a prototype. At first, it's all fun and sure. games until somebody loses like a couple of fingers and then you yeah. figure it out. You know, you go back to the beginning and, you know, update the design. Hopefully, even before you lose a finger, you just look <laughs> at it and you're like, I'm not putting well, this on. is about two thirds of a good idea right here. <laughs> it is not OSHA approved, I think. Yeah, yeah, this I need to just move this up a couple inches. <laughs> so that's basically it. For the four color facts on the first season of Daredevil. Now, there are a great many a-holes out there who keep wanting me to discuss how apparently Daredevil and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles exist in the same universe. But I'm just not gonna. I'm sorry. I'm not gonna do it. First of all, I don't buy this theory entirely. And secondly, I just really wanted to deal with the fact that the Turtles are inspired by Miller's work without making it quite so incestuous. So mm-hmm. I'm just not having it. I'm okay. not having it. All right. So sorry, a-holes. Probably I will need something to talk about during season two. So I'm not going to say I'll never do it, <laughs> but I'm not going to do it this time. It's got to gotta wait for a desperate day, right? <laughs> Pretty rough ride. Yeah. So in case of emergency, talk about Ninja Turtles, I sure. guess. Mm-hmm. But I am going to use the rest of these four color facts to make some reading recommendations to any of the a-holes who might want to read some comic books. Awesome. So, first of all, Frank Miller, obviously, mm-hmm. right? If you want to go back to the beginning of what most people think of as Daredevil, then you're talking about Miller stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a couple of ways you can get it depending on your preference. They are doing a new hardcover omnibus edition of Miller and Klaus Janssen's work. But that thing is going to top out at 70 bucks, and that's Amazon prices. <laughs> For my money, your better bet is to grab used versions of Daredevil Visionaries, Frank Miller. There are three volumes, but there are tons of copies for less than 10 bucks each on Amazon. It isn't everything Miller did on Daredevil, but it's a lot. Is that stuff not available on the Marvel Unlimited app? I am no longer a subscriber to the Marvel Unlimited app, so Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how much of Miller's stuff is available. Probably Mm -hmm. a lot of it is. Yeah. And that's another way that you can go. That is a wonderful service. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're a person who prefers books or you want to try and get it through the library, yeah, you now know the things that you're asking for, right? Awesome. Secondly, I'm going to make a recommendation that you read Ed Brubaker's run on Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Right now, there are some a-holes who are wondering why I am not talking about Brian Michael Bendis' run on Daredevil instead of Brubaker's. Mm-hmm. After all, Bendis is the writer who thoroughly smashed Murdoch's already fragile secret identity to atoms <laughs> and ruined Daredevil's lives in a way even Miller didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he also did it with Alex Maleev on art, and that is a real treat. But there are a couple of reasons I'm not pushing that run. Mm-hmm. First, I don't really like Bendis's style. Okay. <laughs> I just don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the plot and the concepts, but his moment-to-moment work just falls totally flat with me, and it has... Mm-hmm. Since he came to work in comic books and decided that comic book scripts should work just like movie scripts, which, by the way, they super don't. Yes. (laughs) The other reason is because what Ed Brubaker and Michael Lark did to Daredevil after Bendis is in some ways a lot more interesting to me. Mm -hmm. 
So I am a crime fiction and noir guy, if you all haven't figured that out yet, listening to us talk about Daredevil. (laughs) And Ed Brubaker is one of my favorite writers in both of those areas. His books, Criminal, Incognito, Fatal, Velvet, there is a ton of stuff that I love outside of his Marvel work. He is serious business. And he teamed up on Daredevil with Michael Lark, an artist who does real gritty, realistic stuff that Mm -hmm. also has a dynamism that lends itself to a really grounded superhero story. Mm -hmm. I've heard this run described as a tour of Daredevil's failures. (laughs) And if that high concept sounds appealing, don't miss it. It's another three volume set that'll cost you 20 bucks a piece. But to me, that is honestly a bargain at twice the price. Awesome. So, again, I'm not sure how available they are digitally. So check Comixology or check Marvel Unlimited. That might be worthwhile to you. But if you like physical books, we will have links to Amazon in the show notes, which will also give you the right ISBN number and all that good stuff for your local library. Great. Last one. Mark Wade. I am going to recommend Mark Wade's run on Daredevil because in the immortal words of Monty Python... Now for something completely different. (laughs) After Bendis broke Daredevil and Brubaker shattered him, Matt got demon-possessed and became the leader of the Hand and declared Hell's Kitchen his own ninja-run fiefdom called Shadowland. But after that madness, (laughs) Mark Wade and Chris Samney stepped in to try and give us back something more akin to the Daredevil of the 60s while not ignoring the fact that the guy had been through some shit. (laughs) Just a few highlights will tell you this is a much sunnier, more superhero take on the devil from Hell's Kitchen. He fights Ulysses Claw, who we will meet Mm -hmm. in Age of Ultron. He -hmm. fights the Mole Man. He teams up with Spider-Man to find the Omega Drive. And Hank Pym even shrinks down really small and goes into Daredevil's brain to fight tiny Doombots. (laughs) So, yeah, it's a pretty different take. I just, it's so amazing to me how many completely different kinds of stories can be told with the same basic characters. It's so fascinating. I mean, to be honest, sometimes the characters get all twisted and bent out of shape. They don't always make sense as themselves, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that definitely happened in the course of Daredevil, where you just got people who were more interested in telling not Spider-Man stories with him, you know, because Mm -hmm. he was so similar in tone to Mm Spider-Man at the beginning. You just got people who said, maybe this guy should just be, you know, street level crime. And to be fair, when that was starting, Hell's Kitchen was still earning its nickname. Like Mm -hmm. now it's just a very different place. But at the time, it's like this guy's based in Hell's Kitchen. It's seedy and gross. Maybe he should be that guy, you know. (laughs) Um, So I think the first change from swashbuckling daredevil to the more gritty and grim and serious version was a bit of a departure for the character to the point where miller just ignored his backstory remember Mm -hmm. he just rewrote it this time wade really does his best to give us a different take on matt that still takes all of that stuff into account like at one point foggy is worried about his friend and he's like You're sure smiling a lot and trying to put a brave face on this, you know. Mm -hmm. And Matt explains, I'm actually pretty depressed, but I'm trying to get over it. You Mm -hmm. know, like I'm 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 taking this tactic as Daredevil and as Matt Murdock because it's either this or cry, you know. And I like that. Like I I really like that we're doing something very different with the character that doesn't ignore all of this other stuff. Mm -hmm. Because after Miller, Bendis, and Brubaker, there wasn't a lot more ringer to put him through. Right. <laughs> so let's change it up. 
Yeah. But yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um the just the highs and lows and completely different takes that you can get on any given character, you mm-hmm. know. Um, usually I use Batman as the best example of this, but Daredevil gives him a run for his money. Wow. Oh, very cool. Well, thank you so much. Those recommendations are fantastic. And again, those links will be in the show notes. You guys can pick that stuff up at Amazon or find the information that you need to be able to find them elsewhere. Local libraries also are a fantastic way uh, to get books. Never, ever, ever feel guilty for using a library. Libraries are wonderful. And please, please support your local library. So that is our official. (laughs) I read a a million comic books and a bunch of them are from the library. I have no shame. No, you shouldn't. I mean, as somebody who's like an author, people read my books. If they get them at the libraries, they're supporting libraries. Libraries make things available to people who otherwise might not be able to get a hold of them. God knows children who go through books like crazy when they're young, at least mine did. I never would have been able to afford it. If it hadn't been for the library, I never would have been able to afford to keep them in books. So uh, libraries keep people in books. Books are good. Stories are good. They keep people in movies and, and TV. And I think some video games, too, can be rented at the library from time to time i don't know bottom line is libraries are awesome go support your local library (laughs) my last comment on that as far as comic books is Mm -hmm. if you're coming to this podcast because you've mostly watched movies and television but you're really intrigued by some of these four color facts but you're not sure Mm -hmm. if comic books are for you this is a really good way to go find out because they're not cheap Yes. You know, they are not an inexpensive hobby, uh, (laughs) which isn't said to scare you off. It's just it can be really um, it can be really challenging to make sure that they're for you on the cheap before you go whole in. Mm -hmm. And the library is great for that. And these days, the libraries have, at least in my area, a fantastic selection, Mm -hmm. not just of superhero stuff, but of award winning like Neil Gaiman's Sandman Mm -hmm. or. Art Spiegelman's mouse that won a Pulitzer. I mean, you've got options. So Mm -hmm. hither thee to the library. Absolutely. All right. So now here we are discussing the end of season one. We have episodes 11 through 13 to get through today. And we're opening up with The Path of the Righteous. In the path of the righteous, Wilson Fisk rushes Vanessa into the hospital and yells, don't you know who I am? At an ER nurse who beheads 10 men with limousine doors before breakfast, so he backs off. Game recognizes game. Karen shows up at Matt's apartment and they talk about Fisk and Foggy. She leaves. Foggy wakes up in Marcy's bed and they talk about his fight with Matt. At the hospital, Leland and Wesley talk about who might have poisoned Vanessa and the others. Leland suggests Gal. Or maybe Nobu. Maybe it was the Russians? Whatever, as long as no one suspects him. Oh, and the other victims are dead, by the way. It's not looking good for Vanessa. Claire stops by Matt's apartment and stitches up the wound he reopened by moving, or breathing, or talking to Karen. The point is, that guy is barely alive. They talk about saints and martyrs, and Matt says he's neither. And she's like, whatever, we are never going to be able to have sex if you don't stop getting stabbed. That's the subtext, anyway. Karen talks to Ben Urich who doesn't think there's much to be gained by telling a story of how Fisk brained his dad with a claw hammer. And at the hospital, Wesley sits with Fisk and tries to cheer him up by making plans to send Vanessa to a farm upstate if she survives, which is not the thing to say to cheer people up because that sounds like you're talking about their beloved childhood pet. Oh my God. (laughs) The doctor comes out and says Vanessa's going to make it, which is good because if that doctor let her die, there'd be one less doctor in the world saving rich people and one more floating in the Hudson 
likely with his head floating in the East River. I'm just saying, Fisk has a personal style. At the church, Matt talks to Father Latte about caffeine and Matt's roiling desire to murder the shit out of someone. Father Latte is like, hey, maybe it's God's plan. What the hell do I know? Which makes him honest, but kind of useless. Matt goes home and meditates with his shirt off because we need to see his open wounds and also got to keep the ladies watching the show happy. Right, ladies? After a little meditation, Matt suits up as Daredevil and beats up a guy to find out where Fisk got his special protective suit. Because tracking the movement of rare fabric in the city would take too long. And how's he going to get Claire back to his apartment if he doesn't open up a wound or two? Am I right, ladies? At the hospital, Fisk is too distraught to call his mom back, so he has Wesley do it for him. And after listening to Leland report in that Gao sends her love and possibly tried to have them all killed, Wesley calls Marlene. Marlene tells him about Karen coming to visit. Wesley decides to handle it himself because not upsetting Fisk is a pretty sound survival strategy. Matt finds the supersuit tailor and beats him up, but the tailor starts crying and saying Fisk is going to hurt Betsy, and Matt's like, make me a suit, I'll keep Betsy safe, which is a promise he cannot keep as he doesn't know anything about Betsy other than that her name is Betsy, but whatever, our man's going to get a supersuit friggin' finally! Karen goes to Josie's bar and yells at Foggy for getting drunk instead of coming to work and then leaves the bar and calls Matt and tells him to fix whatever's going on with him and Foggy because how is she supposed to get anyone killed today if they all just stay home and get drunk and write slam books about each other? Jeez, guys. Think of someone else for once. Also, I'm beginning to think Karen's love language is leaving shitty voicemail messages for Matt. She calls Ben and gets to be shitty to him live over the phone, and then when she gets to her front door, she gets kidnapped, so it looks like the person Karen's getting killed today might be her. Ooh, flat twist. Fisk sits by Vanessa's bedside and promises that whoever did this to her will suffer greatly for it, because his love language is vengeance. Karen wakes up in a warehouse with Wesley, who shames her for not taking the money and running. He pulls out a gun and lays it on the table between them while he makes his offer. Tell everyone that she was wrong and Fisk is a stand-up guy, or Wesley will kill her and everyone she loves and everyone she likes, and probably some people she hasn't even met, but they look a little like her. But then, Fisk calls, and Wesley's so excited that he pulls his eyes away from the gun and Karen grabs it and shoots him dead and runs. The Path of the Righteous was written by Stephen Estenite and Doug Petrie and directed by Nick Gomez. And of course, I'm very excited once again to see Doug Petrie's name. It's always a good time. Um, all right. So clearly, I write the summaries. <laughs> and Karen is a woman who gets people killed. This is one of the things that I that I noticed in this episode and then like followed it all the way through for the last three episodes of the season. That anybody who happens to be near Karen or speaks to Karen or whatever, ends up dead. So we have this kind of archetype, like there's this femme fatale archetype, right? You know, the woman who's, who's big trouble and she's going to get a good man dead, that kind of thing, right? I'm not a fan of this archetype, you know, because this woman who brings death, you know, she's smart, she asks questions, she's in control of her sexuality. We cannot have these things. These are bad things, right? Um, yeah, also, not for nothing, but this is Daredevil show. It's his job to get people murdered. He's right. the noir superhero. Come on. Right. You know, she's just going around getting people dead all over the place, you know? I mean, we got the guy, Daniel, from the first episode. We've got Elena Cardenas. Um, you know, we're going to have Wesley in a little bit. Spoilers. But if you're listening to this, you've already watched the episode, so it's fine. Um, so we have this kind of thing with her. And I'm wondering, like, is this a deliberate thing or just a handy plot device that everybody she talks to ends up dead? 
oh, I really think that nobody was paying that close attention to the overarching (laughs) thing, right? Like, that's the kind of thing that you pick up as you're watching closely. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a thing that is supposed to be pinned on Karen. She's not the femme fatale in this. She's not a femme fatale. Like, as an archetype. I mean, she is by accident. You're right. I'm sorry. I should say. Yeah. I don't disagree with you. She is the accidental femme fatale. But usually, the femme fatale is getting people murdered on purpose. Well, right. Exactly. But the thing is, like, she is this... This idea of this dangerous woman, right? This is the woman who gets a good man in trouble. This is the woman who, you know, like, like it's it's something that we see. And it's a woman who uh, asks questions, a woman who thinks, you know, although not that mm-hmm. Karen can be accused of thinking that much. But, um, Hello. <laughs> but, you know, it's or a woman who's in charge of her sexuality. We often see that. But with Karen, it's just that she won't shut up. She is the woman who talks and gets people killed. You know, and because she keeps talking, she's going to keep getting people killed. And it's it's this kind of thing that we see like repeated whenever there's behavior that we don't like in women. We give it to a character and we make everybody around her die. And I think that it is I don't think it's deliberate. I don't think it was a deliberate kind of alteration of the femme fatale, because I think if it was, they would have done a better job with it. You know, it would have been more interesting and less repetitive. We would have seen escalation rather than lather, rinse, repeat. Karen asks the question somebody dies Karen talks to somebody somebody dies she gets Ben killed she gets everybody killed you know so like for me I I find that kind of um that kind of repetition sort of in that subtext like in that terroir to uh to be a little problematic for me because it seems like we're just kind of reinforcing this idea that any woman who is talking you know or thinking or in charge of her sexuality, that any of these things, although we haven't seen that part from Karen yet, but I'm talking like a lot of other Oh, but she's trying to be that. in charge of her sexuality with Matt. Oh, God. She's barely in charge of her flirting with Matt. I mean, my God. I but think anyway. she's just bad at it, to be honest. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. And too busy getting people killed. I mean, come on. You know, she's <laughs> well, got, yeah, a, it's a hard day's got work. a quota to meet, right? Um so I don't know, like it just really stood out to me in this episode. And especially as we moved through these three episodes, I was like, God damn. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know? Um, yeah, I don't yeah. disagree with any of that. But to me, as a lover of noir fiction, the yeah. worst part about it is that it's an accident. Like, yeah, right. there should be someone in this story who is getting people killed, but it should not be Karen. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it should be Matt. Like, like Matt should be the kiss of death to people, which he kind of is. I mean, he's involved with Cardenas and he's, you know, but he's he's not like he's not the most involved. Foggy and Karen are the most involved. Um, And that's the thing, too, is that we've got this whole guilt thing, you know, which I know we're going to talk about like in, in more detail. But like we always have Matt feeling super guilty for stuff that's not really necessarily his fault. Like, you know, yeah. he's mostly the people that he's dealing with are people who are, you know, if I, if I come to your door, you did something and bring me there, you know? Right. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. It's so, so the people that are getting hurt around him and the people that he is getting hurt by, you know, punching them with his, with his fist. Right. Um, these are all people who like have signed up for this game. You know, Karen is the one who gets, like, you know, I, I think mostly innocent people killed, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And... She's just the banshee wandering through, harbinging your death. Right. So it's it's just kind of something that, like, again, if it was done deliberately, it would be done, you know, like, with purpose, and it would be escalating. We'd be seeing that there'd be something to it. But the fact that we keep hitting this, like, kind of flat note, 
constantly throughout um, feels like one of those things that's sort of like a subtextual underneath, not saying this is part of my story, but this is just how the world is. You know? Yeah. And even if they don't mean that, it's still the thing that comes through. So it doesn't matter whether they meant it or not. Right. Exactly. It doesn't matter. But I just I find it a little bit rough. And so I'm hoping that we, we sort of step away from that, gain some some awareness of it by the time we hit the second season. Don't tell me I'll get there. I haven't watched it yet. So one of the other things, though, that I really thought was interesting was, of course, Claire who this is the last yeah. episode that we see her in, right? I don't think we see her again after this, right? No, she very wisely gets the hell out of town. Gets the hell out of town, yeah, because she's the smartest person in all of Hell's Kitchen. She's 100%. Fantastic. 100%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I love her her visit with Matt. You know, she's mm-hmm. having that conversation with him. And she says, you told me that you're the man this city needs. I think that's only half true. You're also the man this city created, you know? And so she's kind of talking about, like, I don't know if if what she's saying is that Matt is is directly comes from the way this city is and he sort of needs it back. Like, mm. what is he going to do? Because we have this whole thing with him, right, where he talks about how he likes he likes it. Right. You know, he's got this devil inside. He's going to sit down with Father Latte, I think, in the next episode and talk all about how he like really wants to murder people. Oh, no, that was this episode. He, he's got this thing within himself that he just really wants to murder people, you know. And um, and so he's um, he's it's not just that the city needs him, but he kind of needs the city to be in shit so that he has an excuse to hit somebody. Like if yeah. he lived somewhere where people were nice and nobody was doing anything evil, like what would he do? Yeah, I don't think he'd be well. I mean, I mean, he's maybe not well here, but I think he would be a different kind of unwell there. Like he needs somebody to hit. He needs right. he needs people that deserve to be hit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's got that he's got such a strong sense of purpose and it's so tied up with, you know, saving Hell's Kitchen. But if he ever actually saved Hell's Kitchen and it became just kind of like a nice place, you know, to go and, and live with the family and there were great schools and, you know, that kind of thing. Like, <laughs> uh, you know, if it were like Hell's Kitchen right now in the year of right? our Lord 2018, he would <laughs> sure. just be like, ah, oh, crap. He'd have to move somewhere else. Like yeah. he needs that grime. So I kind of thought that was that was interesting the way she sort of twisted that back on him a little bit. And then at the end, she says this thing. You know the only thing I remember from Sunday school? It's the martyrs, the saints, the saviors. They always ended up the same way, bloody and alone. And I thought that that was kind of like an interesting, you know, thematic take on this idea of, you know, the people who do the rescuing, who do the saving, you know, sacrifice everything. Like they don't have families. They don't have people that they're close to because this is the only thing that they do. So what is the, you know... What is the value of being the martyr of the saint? Because Matt himself is like, I didn't say I was any of those things, you know. Um, But he sees himself more as a devil because even though he's fighting for what's right, he kind of likes it, you know. Mm -hmm. But we, we have him constantly saying over and over and over again, you know, how he's got the devil inside of him. and he really, But he doesn't seem to like it. Like he's good at it. But there's no joy in him when he's in the fight. He looks miserable. I mean, miserable. Well, okay, I'm going to push back a little bit. Okay, good. I think part of that is that we are seeing him in his most difficult fight ever. Right. Right? Because Mm -hmm. remember at the beginning when he was having a fairly easy time of beating the hell out of Russian mobsters? Yeah. He was happier than a pig in shit. 
he didn't seem happy to me. Like uh, I actually, well, I, I like the idea of him satisfied. Liking it. Yeah, I don't know. He's okay. Here's the other thing. I've never read any any kind of joy in the fight. Like the thing is, he's when you've got purpose and you're really good at something. Like even when you're really good at a terrible thing, like Walter White, right? Even with Walter White, there was a joy, you know, from Breaking Bad, for those who don't know Mm -hmm, the reference mm -hmm. that I'm making. um, There was a joy that he that you could see him getting out of perfecting the formula for the meth and like all that kind of stuff. There's never like I never see any joy in Matt. And I would love to be wrong. No, no, I think you're right that you don't see joy. Mm -hmm. But the the thing is, it's because and boy, are we going to talk about guilt here at the end. But yeah. It's because it's self-flagellating. Like, we, we uh-huh. talked about this in an earlier episode that he does like it better than the alternative because in this way he gets to punish people who deserve it. Yeah. And he gets punished in the process because he thinks he deserves it. Right. So when – I think it's a very particular self-destructive definition of liking it. Mm-hmm. I don't think you're ever going to see joy. And to be honest – in a story this influenced by noir, anybody enjoying what they're doing needs to be a villain. Right. But you that's know, the needs thing. to be an on is. the label bad guy. The good guy should not. Because, again, in the wider world of of the MCU, we kind of have to accept that at a certain level, vigilantism is a good, is an mm-hmm. ultimate good. But here in the Netflix series, we interrogate that a little bit through different Mm -hmm. lenses yeah and in daredevil's lens even if the whole world thinks that it's an ultimate good matt doesn't he feels like he is subverting his purpose by having to do it without the law right but he's doing it because it needs to be done he's helping people he's saving people he's doing all this stuff and that's fine like i would be fine with all of that if he wasn't always like i'm a devil i'm terrible like he's doing a good thing and he's doing something that the cops aren't doing because most of them are working for wilson fisk apparently um so like what bothers me about it is that i would be so much more into his internal conflict i would be buying that so much more if he was enjoying it because that's where you go dark like if you're doing this thing because it's the right thing to do and you hate it but you do it anyway because it's right you know i mean that is like a good thing because you have to do it you're doing it because it's the right thing to do even though you don't like it but if he loves doing a terrible thing that he's doing for the right reasons, that's where you get believable internal conflict. But this whole like, and I understand a lot of people, you know, have said because Catholic, you know, he's guilty because he's Catholic yeah. and everybody who's Catholic, you know, and like I, I, I get that there's stuff, you know, with and this is, you know, an incredible stereotype. A lot of people have said this to me, though, but that, you know, Catholics feel guilty for nothing and that that's just what they do and all that kind of stuff. And I get that. But I think narratively that. That's not enough to make me really understand and sympathize with that guilt and worry for him that there is something wrong with him, that he is a devil. Every time he's talking to Father Latte, I'm delighted by Father Latte and his love (laughs) of coffee because that's adorable. But like, I don't like I listen to that whole conversation and I'm like, whatever. Like, you know, he's like, there's a devil inside of me. There's this, you know, but he's doing something he hates because he wants to protect people. It's well motivated. And in the end, the people that he's hurting are people who walked through that door and said, yes, I'm I'm signing up to get punched in the face for this much money you know um so i i don't 
I don't really like believe his guilt. And I would love for that internal conflict to sell better because I think it would be really great. But every time he starts feeling guilty, I'm just like, shut up, Matt, and go hit somebody in the face. Just stop. You know? <laughs> I think I am so in the tank for your hard-boiled and noir storytelling yeah. that a protagonist who is absolutely full to the brim with self-loathing is mm-hmm. something that I can really get behind. Like, I'm not even sure I think that's an internal conflict. I think he just doesn't like himself. Yeah. You know, he doesn't believe that he's a good person. He doesn't believe that he is doing the right thing. He believes he's doing the less bad thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think – if there's an internal conflict, I think that's it. Matt does not feel that he can do nothing, but he does not feel that the things he is choosing to do are good. Mm-hmm. They are just better than nothing. And yeah. this is a man who wants to live in a world where he's can have a clear conscience and say he's doing good things, and he just doesn't live in that world. But is he ever going to live in that world? Like, it no. doesn't matter what he does. You know? Like, I mean – I don't know. I just like the guilt. I, I I get it on an intellectual level. And I like the way that you framed that conflict, you know, um, but but none of that is his fault. He didn't do this stuff. He didn't create these villains. He didn't you know, like these people are here. They're doing damage and he's stopping them. But he is creating his response to them. Yeah, I. that's what I got. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I just, it doesn't, it doesn't connect well enough for me, I think, on that emotional level. Like, on an intellectual level, I can really appreciate it. And the way you framed it, I think, is really good. But on the emotional level, I'm just not, I'm just like, shut up. You're doing good. You've made the choice. Just do the thing and stop complaining. Go to Father Latte, have a cup of coffee, you know, ask him about his life for once, you know. <laughs> See how he's doing. Ho, ho, ho. Hold on. We got to hear about that cat's awesome backstory in Africa. Uh, no, So this I'm is not true. saying don't ask again, but man, <laughs> we did get a little of that and it was pretty dope. We so, got a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, all right. So another thing, we've got some kind of uh, a couple of, of love relationships going on here, right? We've got um, Marcy and Foggy. What did you think about about the meat grinder in a, in a pencil skirt? <laughs> okay, I really like her. <laughs> I like her as an antagonist. I like yeah. their backstory. Like, mm-hmm. so taking a cue from the fact that Matt wears his self loathing like a badge, right? Foggy tries to hide his self loathing with somewhat destructive behavior, or by <laughs> subsuming himself in bigger personalities, or sometimes with Marcy, both at the same time. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Now, she does turn out to have kind of a conscience. Like, Mm -hmm. she she isn't entirely only a meat grinder. Right. But Mm -hmm. she's not nice. And she does not treat him well. And I think he's cool with it because he is also a self-flagellator, just differently than Matt. So I I, love all of that very much. Okay, good. I I love her. I think she's great. And I don't even think that she's, I don't think she treats him bad. I think that she just isn't super nice. Like, she's very honest and straightforward. Like, I love this moment when she's like, that's a very asshole thing to say. I'm impressed. And he goes, I'm sorry. And she goes, and now you've ruined it. No, that's, that's the thing. He is, I think in one of our earlier episodes, you described Foggy as something like just a giant bundle of vulnerability. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know that Marcy, it, she's like this to everybody, but with yeah. Foggy, it's worse because you're kicking a puppy. 
you're kicking a puppy. But you know what? I mean, like uh, people who walk around in that giant state of ultra vulnerability to the point where everybody around them has to be so, so careful all the time. I think she could toughen him up a little bit. I think that, and I kind of like, like I liked her, you know, I like the way no, that she was. I great. like the fact that she didn't tiptoe around his like fragile little boy feelings you know and she's just like this is what it is she's very straightforward you know so I actually enjoy that relationship and think it is probably one of the um the healthiest relationships we see represented on the show I mean granted it's a dark show so there aren't going to be very many healthy relationships but um but actually I really like Marcy and and Foggy together I think they're kind of fun um here's what I like about Marcy Mm -hmm. and Foggy as a mirror to Foggy and Matt yeah Matt is also a super abusive significant other to Foggy. Uh-huh. Only they pretend like he's not. <laughs> Whereas Marcy is just like on the label like, no, really, I'm only this into you. So Marcy's watch it. Straightforward. Well, she told him he was good and bad. I mean, come on, right? Listen, it's something. Foggy That's had to something. be good at so- No, Foggy's good at the law. He's just a yeah. 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 No, no, I no, I love that. I really like that. I mean, Foggy looks for relationships that are bad for him. Mm-hmm. And Marcy is a very entertaining, different flavor of bad for him than Matt. But there, there's a core similarity there where both of them treat him badly. Marcy's mm-hmm. just honest about it. And at the point that he's broken up with Matt, because by the yeah. way, I think that's a love story that's going on on this show oh, too. Oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, while he's broken up with Matt, he needs somebody who's going to be honest like that. I th- yeah. Much more than he needs like a mat replacement, you yeah. know, no, um, and, and get the hell away from Karen before you breathe in her miasma of death. So no, seriously, Foggy is the only one who has interacted with Karen and didn't immediately meet a terrible end. Um, and uh, well, he and so already far, met so his fatale, uh, his home fatale. Yes. In Matt. So <laughs> right. Matt is his terrible end. Karen is <laughs> second rate as far as terrible ends go. Oh, God. Dying so, is easy. Being BFF with Matt. Now that shit's hard. That is hard. That is hard. Um, all right. So other love stories. We have uh, Wilson Fisk, of course, and Vanessa. Um, and he is, you know, torn up. He's by her bedside. He promises vengeance to her, you know, unconscious body. Um, and, you know, t- like how much he loves her in this whole thing. And And my question is, like, is he really in love? Like, he's clearly in something with her, like maybe like a dark, twisted thing or an obsession or something. But if she ever betrayed him or, you know, upset him, whether she meant to or not, or I don't know, burned his eggs, like he would brain her with a frying pan in a minute if she ever like crossed him in any way. And that doesn't seem like love to me. Am I reading that wrong? Well, it's not good. Like, I don't think you're reading it wrong in that that's a pretty poisonous relationship. But again, which relationship on screen in this show isn't a poisonous relationship? Um, Ben and Doris Doris are nice. Yes, but she's also (laughs) deteriorating quickly and he's dealing with the fact that he's going to have to live without the love of his life. Like, it's not the same kind of bad, but it's nobody's in a good spot. You know, in their relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm more confused by what Vanessa feels for Wilson. The line that I think you're a little past, right, Mm -hmm. is 
the betrayal, yes. Like, she's going to be dismembered with his bare hands. Right. But with this woman, I think it is obsession or something a little um, a little creepy in a way. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. if she burned his eggs, he would just then decide he loved burned eggs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if she ever did something Until that actually that betrayed did. his trust. Yeah. Yeah, done. Done. Yeah. Because because the, the opposite of... Love isn't hate, it's indifference. And right. he would just flip the switch, right? He would just go from, I love you, you're the best thing ever, to, well, nope, that's it. You're the worst thing ever, now awful things happen to you. Right, exactly. And that's the thing. Like, she she does seem to have gone in this, you know, with her eyes wide open. Yeah. Like, I, I think that she knows exactly what she's getting into. But if she believes that there's never going to be a time when they have a fight, you know, like, I mean, that's, it's a relationship. Like, you can never... You know, she can never get mad at him. Like, he will kill her. Like, you don't know what's going to set him off, what's going to make him. Like, he will love and protect and value her, uh, like, until the day he decides that he's not going to do that anymore for whatever reason. And, you know, she's not safe. Like, this is a relationship that is going to kill her. And so I just, I find it interesting. Like, what is it that she sees in him? You know, how is she... I don't know. It's weird. I think, wow, let's just read into Vanessa for a minute, but for real. Yeah. I think what she feels with Wilson is, well, well, here's where I'll challenge what you said. I think at home she's in charge. Yeah. So I think she basically behind closed doors can do no wrong. Like he worships okay. her. And mm-hmm. as long as she never crosses him out in the world. Right. Then, then she is a hundred percent safe. He will never flip against her. What if she gets mad at him? What if what if he doesn't like the way that she chews one day? Like what? Like the thing I don't is, think this that will happen. I think that's what I mean minute. by she's in charge at home. Yeah, like he will adjust his worldview so that mm-hmm. she is always in the center of it. She mm-hmm. tells him how to dress. She yeah. tells him to go public. You know, as long as she never does that in front of Wesley or Gao or mm-hmm. Leland or really in front of a camera. She's getting the best of all possible worlds. And when I say the best of all possible worlds, I mean really terrible worlds where right. where she gets to be the boss of this very powerful man who never stops being a very powerful man. And I mean, maybe I think she likes she it. Likes. Maybe she's into the danger of it. Maybe she she's, likes like, people yeah. that are dangerous to other people, yeah. not to her. Clearly. And she found that guy. Mm-hmm. Clearly. Yeah. I don't know. It's really interesting. But speaking of Wesley. <laughs> Hold on. We have to talk about my favorite love affair going on in daredevil yes okay because we do have marcy and foggy we have foggy and matt Mm -hmm. we have karen and matt Mm -hmm. we have wilson and vanessa we have Mm -hmm. vanessa with vanessa i think we have wilson and wesley that's also a love story We have wilson and wesley also Mm -hmm. yes all these love affairs also at the core i want to go back to something i said in our very first daredevil episode we also have matt and daredevil Matt and Daredevil. Because right, if so that guy could just slow down on his love affair with punching dudes while wearing a mask, <laughs> a lot of people's but, lives get much better. All right, but let's let's look at this as a as a love affair, right? As a thing, is Matt somebody different when the mask is on? Is no, he no. in love with that person? He is in love with the freedom that being mm-hmm. Daredevil gives him. Yeah. Well, and power, right? I mean, yeah, yes, look, yes. if you're a lawyer and you are genuinely working for the common good, right? That's a frustrating situation to be in. Yes. That's a frustrating life to live. And I think often you probably would feel powerless in a lot of those situations, you know, because you can't always 
do what's right, you know, and sometimes you don't get what's right. You know, our justice system is a justice system that is highly, highly flawed. So here he is in a situation of being disempowered. I mean, to the point where we've taken away his eyesight, right? Mm -hmm. And then he becomes like completely empowered because he is able to do things that he can't do during the day. He can't do without the mask on that a lot of other people can't do. He's able to dispense a, a justice um, that makes sense to him, you know? So, so is it a love affair between Matt and Daredevil as, as two different entities that can never be in the same place at the same time, but always are <laughs> wistful for each other, right? Or, you know, is it that Matt has a, an obsessive love of that kind of power and freedom? Matt loves, I really think Matt loves the person he gets to be when he's, in the mask. Mm -hmm. I think if, if there's a part where he likes it, that we're having trouble seeing it's because most of the time that he talks about his feelings, he's doing it as Matt. Like he's talking yeah. about what he does as something sort of separate from him mm -hmm. and he doesn't like it. But when he's yeah. in the outfit, it's simple. It's clean. Lives are saved. The evil, mm -hmm. the evildoer is punished, you know, yeah. And he does not have to feel conflicted about it at all until he goes home and takes the mask off. Right. Now he Except has to he go lie to Foggy conflicted. about it. Now right. he has he to go lie conflicted. to Karen about it. Yeah. I, well, even when he's even when he's like whenever he's talking to somebody, you know, like in the moment, like he's he seems still conflicted and like really unhappy about it. But he does it because it needs doing, you know, I think talking to people as daredevil is not what he wants to be doing as daredevil. And that's, it's right. a little too close to being mad. If I wanted to have conversations, I'd just be a lawyer. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh -huh. That No, that's why I think he still looks uncomfortable when he has to deal with other people in any kind yeah. of actual interpersonal way is because then it's not clean anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or as clean as we are going to get in a show that's all about, you know, the corruption in the world and how it infects you. Right. Absolutely. It's a really interesting approach to the secret identity that we don't get a lot. You know, okay. um, the best versions of Batman do not have Bruce Wayne treating Batman as some another person. He's treated like a tool. Right. Yeah. Um, or Peter Parker. It, it, Spider-Man is a yoke around his neck. Like he mm -hmm. has to do it, but it doesn't make his life better. You know, right. makes other people's lives better. doesn't make his life better. Like they don't, there's not a lot of this discussion of, of just, I am super in love with that lifestyle. Like I can't mm -hmm. walk away from that lifestyle. And I think we get that with Matt. I don't see it as much as I'd like to. I'd like to see that a little bit more. I'm not going to disagree with that. I, I, yeah. I think that we could have pinned more of a rose on that than, mm -hmm. than what happens. And again, partly that's because Matt talks to people as Matt. Like even when he's talking right. to his priest about what he does as daredevil, he's not talking to him like as daredevil. And I, mm -hmm. I don't think he thinks of them as separate people. So I don't want to overplay that, but I think you understand me. Like it's yeah. just easier. It's just easier when he's in the outfit. So. No, it's 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 a really interesting dichotomy. I like it, and it's, it's just it's fun to kind of poke at that. Um, all right. So speaking of poking, uh, let's go to Wesley. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Here is my essential question about Wesley: Is Wesley committing suicide via Karen? Because here's here's my textual evidence for this. One, he put a loaded gun down on the table between them, 
within her reach. She does not, her hands are not bound, right? She's just sitting there. He, she was knocked out. He had time to tie her, you know, to the chair yeah. or whatever. Didn't do any of that. Um, and then he gets a phone call from Fisk and he's like, oh, phone call from my boyfriend. And then completely ignores the gun that is sitting between them and, and basically enables Karen to kill him. Evidence number two. Karen has this dark past, right? She looks at him and she says, do you really think this is the first time I've shot someone, right? We know that Ben found out something about her that she hasn't talked about. She's got this dark past. But if Ben Urich found it out, there is no way in hell Wesley did not know the same thing that Urich knows. And when she says, do you really think this is the first time I've had to shoot someone, right? It is clear there's no surprise on his face, right? So he knows that. Um, he knows that everybody who's ever spoken to Karen is dead. Um, he <laughs> that goes seems to, a little genre savvy, but do go a little, on. A little genre savvy, but whatever. Um, he, he doesn't tell anybody where he's going or who he's going to get. He grabs her and does it. So looking at it, I mean... Is, is Wesley just so tired of this endless grind of picking brains out of limousine doors that he's just, he wants it over? I have never read it that way. I yeah. read it as hubris. Okay. In all honesty, I think it's supposed to be hubris. Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> right. you have, yeah. you have very interesting points. Um, this might also be a place where Wesley does something that would be more interesting from wilson mm -hmm. like i think if if hubris and and eventually hubris is the thing that brings wilson down yeah. um mm -hmm. and again we're giving too much screen time to wesley <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i've only read it as as hubris but now he's so confident there's no hesitation he never flutters if we had even a moment of him like looking in the mirror with ominous music and tightening up his tie, then I would right. be like, yeah, I think he killed himself by Karen. Right. Because he's not stupid and he puts the gun there. And then when she picks it up, he does this whole bluff. Do you really think that I would put bullets? I would put, you know, I would leave a loaded gun there in the middle of the thing. And, you know, obviously like I, I, if he did that, like, that seems to me like something that he is just kind of tempting fate. And he does this whole speech, like, yeah. right before that, where he says, you made a choice, and that choice has brought you here on this night at this particular moment in time. Perhaps that's the way it was always going to be. Perhaps we're destined to follow a path none of us can see, only vaguely sense, as it takes our hand guiding us towards the inevitable. I mean, that sounds <laughs> like somebody who has clearly pondered his own <laughs> death, right? Yeah. Maybe or he has been since Vanessa went down, right? Yeah, maybe, He's just like, maybe. oh, shit, this thing's falling apart. Yeah, yeah, because people who are close to, to Wilson don't tend to do that well either. Um, so I don't know. I find it uh, really interesting. There, there was kind of some stuff there that I was like, huh, this seems a little weird. Um, but I think I think you're right. I think textually, like what we really get is is hubris. But it, But there's a lack of clarity there. And obviously he must have known about her past and she has shot people before. Um, so I don't know. I thought it was kind of an interesting question. No, it is. And if I didn't already think Wesley was soaking up way more screen time than he needed, like if I wanted him to be more interesting, then he could have this whole self-destructive subplot. As it is, oh, I'm just yeah. like... Wesley, see yourself out the door. Thank you very much. Exactly. We don't need you anymore. Um, but it is the most I've ever liked Karen. 
I have to say that. Sure. She Shooting a dude on killing Getting somebody killed on purpose? Yeah. I know. Absolutely. So it is a step up for Karen. <laughs> Accurate. I get it. <laughs> All right. So I don't know. Is there anything that you wanted to touch on in the path of the righteous that we didn't talk about yet? So for me, this is the last, like, a really good episode. The other two are fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to get to it. But they're just fine. This is, like, the last really good one. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is me seeing some of the squandered opportunities that could have been here. Like, we are suddenly, for the last couple of these episodes, going to talk a lot about religious imagery. And I'm kind of yeah. like, maybe we should have done that for, like, ten episodes. Sure. You know? <laughs> like, now, there's confession. He has been speaking with his priest. There has been a lot of discussion of the devil, of Satan. Mm-hmm. But now, suddenly, at this late stage, we're introducing... You know, the idea of sinners, saints, martyrs. And I'm like, boy, does this seem like some stuff that should have come up before now if we really wanted to sell it, you know? Yeah. I mean, we've got the devil stuff, you know, but I mean, that also has a, you know, like a more secular context too. you know, the metaphorical Mm -hmm. devil or the thing that's that's, you know, causing you to do bad things. Um, But yeah, it feels like we are leaning heavily. And I guess, you know, we've had him talking to Father Latte. We've had that sense of Catholic guilt. We've had but we're leaning on that so hard. You know, it's like it's like we've been cruising along and then suddenly somebody hit the the religious symbolism gas at the end. And it does feel a little uneven. So it's not bad. It just. Yeah. In fact, it's quite good. It just makes me wish we had been peppering this through more so that when Claire said it, we would just be like, oh, yeah, Yeah. you know, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. we still are to an extent because Claire is obviously the person who understands things like really gets it. Mm -hmm. Um, She's. You know, separate enough from all the drama that she can really speak truth to it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of it for me. I, I'm just you know I'm putting up the signposts. This is the last yeah. great episode, and it's so darn good. It makes me wish that they had tightened up a few other things in this frankly pretty tight season honestly it is a pretty tight season it's moving pretty well and i gotta say i really enjoy doug petrie always one of my favorites mm-hmm. so it's very fun to like uh to engage with his work as well oh uh, one thing though that i did want to mention briefly we talked about a little bit in the four color facts that was melvin yes like i kind of love melvin here are the things that i love about melvin one i love that he's just kind of caught in this thing he's obviously like there's something cognitively with him that is mm-hmm. a little bit different you know um that he is really just doing this for mr fisk because of betsy because he's protecting yeah. betsy and he loves her and he just wants to make sure she's safe and also because for once We have a situation in which Matt needs information from somebody and he does not need to beat them up. Like he beats them up a little bit. They fight a little bit. But then Melvin starts crying and starts sharing all this stuff and they sort of have a talk and he said, I'll take care of Betsy. And, you know, and also we have somebody who can make him a really, really cool suit. So um, I kind of love Melvin. I like that we got this this other take on the, you know, the the soldiers for Fisk, that not all of them are these, you know, bad guys who will kill you in a heartbeat, that some of them are just, you know, people in the wrong place at the wrong time who happen to have particular talents that that Fisk needed, you know. Um, so I actually really kind of liked Melvin. I liked that twist. I liked that moment where Matt as Daredevil could sit and have a shared moment of humanity mm-hmm. with one of the bad guys. Uh, for me, I thought it worked really well. 
in fact, a thing that I hadn't thought about until we got, you know, mm-hmm. so deep into this, you know, even when Matt is talking to somebody as Daredevil, he's uncomfortable because yeah. it's not what he wants to be doing. With Melvin, it is what he wants to be doing mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Melvin is not Ben or Karen. Like, yeah. they are not right there. It's it's still clean. This is a mm-hmm. person who only knows Daredevil. So even talking right. to this person, mm-hmm. he does get to be vulnerable and very comfortable in his own skin as Daredevil in a way he can't be when he's talking to Ben and Karen. Yeah. And it gives him a chance to employ uh, kindness, yeah. you know, and, and to express his humanity even when he's in that suit. So, um, so yeah, I thought, it was, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, no, Melvin is a strong addition. Yeah, no, he's really, really great. All right, so that moves us on to Season 1, Episode 12, The Ones We Leave Behind. In The Ones We Leave Behind, Karen has a nightmare about Fisk killing her because she killed Wesley, and she's all horrified, but come on, Karen. You know as well as we do that you're the one who knocks, and then someone standing near you dies. This is not your first rodeo. She goes to the office, Foggy scares the hell out of her, and then asks her for the notes on The Man in the Mask, saying he doesn't think he's a terrorist. As he's going out the door, Matt walks in and they say nothing to each other. Foggy leaves, and Karen tries to talk Matt into making up with Foggy. Karen's all weird, and Matt asks her if something happened, and she doesn't tell him that she murdered a man a few hours ago, because apparently the rules of this game are drink all your feelings and keep all your secrets, and everyone standing next to Karen dies. I tell you, it's not shoots and ladders, but you can kind of see the appeal. At the hospital, Vanessa wakes up and Wilson says he wants to send her to Europe, but then Francis comes in and says they found Wesley, and they all go together to view the bloody dead body, and then Fisk beats the hell out of the messenger because he's crazy. He tasks Leland with finding out who did this, then sees that the last person Wesley spoke to was his mom. Daredevil meets with Ben Urich in an alley, and they swap information about the drugs and the steel serpent and the Chinese and the Russians. Karen visits Ben and tells him that she thinks that Fisk might know that they visited his mother. And when he asks her how she knows, she says, just a feeling. Okay, Karen, whatever. Ben says he'll write up the story and give it to his editor. Matt passes a blind woman on the street and follows her until she gets in a car, at which point he runs into an alley, throws his stick aside, climbs up the walls, and jumps over roofs to keep up with the car, which delivers her to a warehouse. Wilson Fisk grabs his mother from the nursing home and sends her to Italy. Matt calls Karen and says he's onto something, but he wants Karen and Foggy to stay away from it. And he's like, met Karen, right? Because of course she's not going to stay out of it, Matt. She's Karen. It's been like 12 whole hours since she's gotten anyone killed. The girl's got to hit her quota. Ben's editor blocks the story about Wilson Fisk, and Ben figures it out. His editor is on the take with Fisk. He accuses the editor in front of the whole office and immediately gets fired and then seems surprised by this strange turn of events. What did you think was going to happen, Ben? Although, fair enough, you've been hanging out with Karen Page. The fact that you're still alive is enough of a shock to make the world seem strange and unpredictable. At the warehouse, Madame Gao watches over her crew of worker bees as they dutifully fill up Gladware with designer heroin, and I'm sure it's a coincidence that they all appear to have been blinded by acid. Daredevil shows up and Gao shouts and the workers turn on him. Daredevil escapes the blind workers, attacks Gao and her men, and because of all the barrels of explosive liquid, the bad guys should know better than to just keep lying around where stray bullets can set a place on fire, everything goes up in flames. Rookies. Daredevil gets the workers out of the burning warehouse and then runs into his cop friend Brett, who doesn't recognize him, Lonnie, because Matt Murdock is a blind lawyer, not a vigilante. (laughs) 
who can do <laughs> super kung fu and parkour. <laughs> also, he's wearing a mask. You can never recognize anybody who has their eyes covered. Yeah, that's why I emphasize the bigger things. Okay. <laughs> Daredevil disarms Brett, knocks him down, tells him about Hoffman and Blake, and hot foots it out of there because other cops arrive. Meanwhile, Gao and Leland have a painfully expository conversation on a rooftop where they discuss openly that they were the ones who tried to dispatch Vanessa because she was a distraction for Fisk. Anyway, Gao is done with all this bullshit. She leaves Leland with some wisdom about crushing wheels, but Leland's primary love language is money, and he has no idea what the hell she's talking about. Ben visits his wife, who inspires him to start a blog and tell his story. He calls Karen and tells her his plans. Matt comes back to the office, and he and Karen wonder why they don't talk to each other, and maybe, I'm not a relationship expert or anything, but maybe it's all the secrets and lies? Matt breaks down with her and cries, saying that he can't do it alone anymore. She hugs him, and they both cry, and it's all really heartwarming, but they're still not actually, you know, talking. Whatever. On the other side of town, it appears that even talking to Karen on the phone is as good as standing next to her. Because when Ben goes back to his apartment, Wilson Fisk is there, and he and Ben have a nice chat before he kills Ben. But it's not his fault. He had no choice. Dude, just talk to Karen Page. There are rules to this thing, man. The Ones We Leave Behind was written by Doug Petrie and directed by Euros Lynn. Yes. Now, here's the thing. I love Doug Petrie. I have talked about that before. I'm a huge fan. I adore him. I had, like, nothing in this episode. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) I have one thing. Is there really much to talk about? I mean, I did like the whole Assassin's Creed thing. You know, when uh, when Matt is following on the rooftop. Have you ever played Assassin's Creed? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, climbing up walls and running on rooftops and following people and all this kind of stuff. And it's really, really fun. Um, so I actually really liked that sequence. It was fun to kind of see him, although it was a, it was a little bit insane. It was a little bit much, um, especially because the gymnast who plays Matt doesn't look a lot like, you know, Charlie Cox. And so that got <laughs> yeah. a little distracting in a couple of places. Um, but it was it was a very cool little sequence. And I thought that, that was kind of neat. That's not only cool because of the sequence, which is very mm-hmm. cool, but it's also yeah. as close as we get to Matt detecting things. There you go. Like he does actual detective work there. See, I told you he could do it. Well, sure. Broken clocks. (laughs) Um, And the only other thing that kind of like threw me out a little bit, although I do like it, like Doris, when Ben comes to talk to her, like Doris, Doris's lucidity is always like at the moment when, when Ben needs her to be lucid, then she's lucid, you know, it is narratively Um, convenient. It, then it's a narratively convenient lucidity, which to me, it feels weird to give her this disease that makes her inaccessible, you know, except when she's on screen, you know. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, like it, it felt it felt weird to me. And I think it would have been even more heartbreaking if he was talking to her and he was filling in her part of it, like knowing what she would say if she was there, you know, but when she has that lucidity and she's there and I just keep thinking, okay, well, she's not, she's not, she's not so far gone. Like, you know, I mean, she can still be part of this, but I don't know. It just, it felt weird to me and I, I haven't quite been able to like put my finger on what it is about it that feels like wrong to me, but it just feels wrong. For me, I think it just went on about two thirds too long. Yeah, maybe. Like, there's a lot of useful go get 'em tiger talk in there that that I that I enjoy. But yeah. yeah, because of what we've had from Doris up until then has been 
very come and go. And it's been yeah. like like very personal and with a great deal of insight for Ben, but it's also always half done in every it, other yeah. every other scene with her. And so here I just feel like, yeah, it should have been a third as long and she should have trailed off and he would have been like, okay, I guess I'm going to the internet. I, I mean, right. I'm being dismissive. I, I would like him to sort of, as you say, fill in those blanks, maybe not quite with so much exposition. But because he knows her so well, like exactly. that he would be able to fill that in. But you would also feel the sadness of her being there but being gone because that is such a that is such a constant grief. Yes. You know? Yeah. And it also feels to me like here we have Doris who is in this hospital bed who who I, like, you know, we are told, we are informed more than shown that she's not lucid all the time. She's so instead of like waking up in a hospital bed and being terrified and not knowing what's happening or her having any concern for her situation. She always seems to know, like, and accept the fact that she's in this space and she's never, she doesn't have that confusion of, oh my God, what's going? Like, if you wake up and you don't remember what's happening and you're in a hospital bed and you've got this situation, like, it, it, it seems like we don't have her worried for her. We always have her focused on Ben. So, okay. I don't know. Like that feels a little weird. I'm going to I'm going to say a thing that I kind of avoided saying earlier. Yeah. But I think now I'm seeing too much of it to yeah. avoid all of it cuz uh, I'm going to say it about Doris, but it's also about somebody else and we'll circle back to her. So, Yeah. I feel like Doris may be playing the magical negro trope right now. Mhm. So, Usually that trope involves a person of color being a source of wisdom to a white person um, who's usually the protagonist. And in this case, Ben is filling the role of protagonist and Doris is doing Mm -hmm. it for him. Now, I have not thought very hard about that trope in terms of two people of color. So I am Mm -hmm. prepared to have a very interesting conversation with our a-holes about that. Yes. Mm-hmm. So now that I've noticed that they're kind of doing that for Doris and have been since jump with her. Yeah. I'm afraid they might be doing it with Claire too. Oh goodness. I yeah, think... Claire, but, but see that's the thing. See for me of course, like my perspective is I'm I'm not I'm not seeing the like the um I guess because Ben also is black, that because we have these two people together and we have this strong relationship and she's not magical in all the other ways, you know, like for me, it's like it's just that the woman is all about the man. You know, I look at that and I think Doris is not about her life. She's not about her experience. Um, She comes in and she delivers these, you know, these magical words. And I think it does traipse into the territory with that trope. I think what we've got is a Venn diagram of the the woman doing the emotional labor, you know, and um, and the the magical other, you know. Mm hmm. So I think that we're getting a little bit of overlap there. Um, but it is it is really interesting. I would like to hear from the a-holes to see, like, to get a little broader perspective on this. Because this is something that, honestly, I'm just, I'm looking at now. It's bothering me, and I haven't been able to nail down everything mm-hmm. about it that's bothering me. But I think it may be from a couple of different places that it's bothering me. And I think that we definitely do see her in that role, you know, in the next episode, where this woman who is, uh, you know, obviously, ill oh who's my been God, through so yes. much takes the time to comfort Karen and tell oh. Karen that Ben loved her like a daughter you know like that is terrible 
Yeah. Uh, that really, really bugged me. Um, because if, in even in this moment, like, for this whole thing with Ben, nothing is ever about Doris. Doris is the one in the hospital. Doris is the one who is ill. Doris is the one who probably spends some chunk of her days not knowing what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. She's got to be terrified. And yet she solely exists to motivate Ben and to to give him little inspirational speeches. And then when Ben's gone, she's got all of that stuff that she already had. Plus, she just lost the love of her life, the person who took care of her, the person who came to visit her, the person that she could remember who she was before yes. she had this thing. And she is so concerned with Karen's well-being, that Karen doesn't feel terrible about it, that Karen knows how much Ben loved her. Um, and that, to me bothered me i think the most so doris for me is an escalating scale of i don't like the way that this character is being treated this character is being used you know and not not like made to be a part of the story like her being angry at karen you pulled him into this thing he was going to retire he was going to spend time with me we were going to get the last bit of what i have left together you know, I mean, to be to be angry, to be upset, to be thinking about as the widow at the funeral, you know, I mean, the, the ring theory of care applies, right? You know, is yeah. that the person who's at the center is the one you take care of and then you don't they don't have to take care of you, you know, but here she is with this stranger telling her, oh, Ben loved you like a daughter. This isn't your fault. He had a great time. He was doing what he loved. Um, no. You know, like, so I don't know, like all of that stuff bugs me. The stuff with Doris bugs me. And I think there are probably a lot of different reasons why it all bugs me. But I would love to hear the opinions of the a-holes on this. And I was, like I said, I was kind of getting little bits of that vibe from Claire in the last episode that made me Mm -hmm. reevaluate some of her other appearances. Yeah. She definitely gets more character than Doris gets. Yes. But a Mm -hmm. lot of it. Maybe all of it. This is new, so I have to go. I'd have to go back and rewatch all of her scenes. Yeah. So it might be all of it, but definitely a lot of it is Matt centered and not yeah. not always. I'm starting to feel not always in a way that can be justified just by him being a protagonist. You know, yes, or even the guy that she's interested in. I mean, she does like express some interest. They do have this affectionate relationship. They did have that kiss, you know. Um, but at the same time, yeah, like she exists to patch Matt up at all hours of the night, Mm -hmm. whatever inconvenience it might be to her. Um, You know, like her life and what happened to her, even when she gets kidnapped, you know, like she gets kidnapped and almost killed and goes through this highly traumatic thing and she's still taking care of him. Yeah, You know, like he takes care of her for a little bit and as soon as she's back on her feet, she's, you know, she's taking care of him again. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. Like, I find it a little bit troubling. And I think it's it's something that we're seeing happen. And, you know, I mean, not for nothing. It's mostly men writing this. It's mostly men directing this. It's mostly men telling this story. And that's okay. Like, men can tell stories. But because almost it is up until very recently, and even now it's still nowhere near like an even split. We're just a little bit better than we were. 
the representation and who told the stories was, you know, white male. Like that was yeah. always it, you know? And so because of that, those presumptions that come with being a white male get baked into the stories that tell us and reflect all of us back on each other. But the thing is, it doesn't reflect a lot of us accurately, you know? Um, so looking at all of that, and, you know, I, I just I feel like there's some there's some problematic stuff that's kind of happening uh, with these characters. I think it's definitely worth taking a look at at the same time. You know, like I love Doris. Like, I, you know, I, I like her. I like the actress. I would have loved to have seen her actually dealt with as a human, as a character, rather than a device for, you know, reflecting Ben back on himself. And then when Ben's gone, reflecting Karen back on herself, you know, holding that spotlight up to the other people in the in the story. Um, and I love Claire. I mean, I love Claire. Claire is badass. Yeah. But yeah, toward the end, everything is about Matt. You know, what do we know about Claire? Aside from the fact that she lives alone, she's a nurse. Nope, that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's all we got. And I mean, I know she's a secondary character, but she's also kind of his romantic interest. She's there a lot. She's the one who patches him up. Like, you know, I want to see something in her that's for her. She's always so concerned for him, you know, but he. what do we even know about her? Nothing. Um. Also, I'm going to put a pin in people of color being magical people of color. For mm-hmm. other people of color. I'm just going to put a pin in this. I'm sorry. That yeah. was very belabored. Until we get to the end of Jessica Jones season one. Okay. Let's just All remember right. this conversation when we get there. All right. No, let's revisit it. I have something it's, it's in mind, but I don't want to jump that far All ahead, right. obviously. All so right. We'll get there when we get there. But I think it's it's an interesting conversation to have. And a-holes who have perspectives on it that you know I might not be thinking of or that Joshua might not be thinking of, please, 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 hashtag listen up a-holes on Twitter. Come into the Discord chat uh, if you're a Patreon um, subscriber. And, uh, and we'll have that conversation because I'm really interested. And I don't have it nailed down. I, I haven't like solidified all of my thoughts on it yet. And I would really love to get some input to see if other people see what I'm seeing even, you know? Definitely. And I think it's really interesting that all the most interesting stuff we have to talk about this episode is how it might be kind of a mess. Yeah. Like, there's just not a lot going on here. And this is part of what I meant about, like, it's okay. It it does some things and escalates a couple things. But then it's basically here to move us into Daredevil, which is not Mm -hmm. itself the best finale. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's talk a little bit about Gal though right because this is our this is our swan song for gal at least in this season um she is done with this bullshit she's not interested in doing the heroin anymore he blew up he blew up her warehouse she able to she's able to escape with her life which is which is good because i like gal um but that conversation that incredibly and for somebody like for doug petrie who is wonderful with conversation who is wonderful with dialogue and with character like I've seen his work be so so good this expository rooftop conversation that feels like it almost feels to me like somebody else wrote it it's so Mm. flat it's so well hey remember that thing that you and I did to Fisk poisoning his girlfriend for these reasons let's have that discussion you know, even though you were there and I was there, we both know what's happening. You know? Yeah. Like it's it's painful. It's expository. It's flat. It's not well done. And then, of course, oh, and hey, speaking of this magical person of color, right? Ugh. She walks off 
leaves him with some, you know, this, these Chinese words of wisdom about the, the wheel that smashes people and all this kind of stuff. It was kind of painful to me. And I actually, I love Gao and I love Leland. And so to have two characters who I really, really like in this incredibly painful, we just need to make sure that the audience knows that we were the ones who were behind poisoning Vanessa, you know, like I, it just, it was so flat for me. Well, here's the thing too. The show, it doesn't happen a lot because, you know, we haven't had to discuss this particular kind of choice a lot. But it happens a few times and they're all kind of important where the Mm -hmm. show tries to keep something secret from the viewer that does not need to be secret from us. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. And this is an example of that. Like, I would actually possibly have had more tension in the Mm -hmm. poisoning scene. Yeah. Watching Leland react to what was going on around him and and act badly, kind of. Right. And more delight in the hospital while he's like, well, maybe it was Gal. Like, I mean, yeah. that would have been yeah. like, I, I figured it was Leland, you know, because he was so like, hey, maybe it's Nobu. Nobu's dead. I know. But, you know, things happen. And you know, he's just trying. <laughs> There's to other Japanese all people, these, right? There's other That's... Japanese people, yeah. you know, who yeah. might want to kill you. Um, So, I mean, I love and I love Leland through this whole thing. This scene, I don't need it. Like right. I don't, it doesn't matter. Like you can cut this scene out, and it and this show becomes better. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that it's so painful. And then having and Gal like her place has been burned up. Like her disappearing on Matt, you know, and then just into the, like a wisp into the night, and us never knowing what happened to her. That would have been so much better than why is she coming to Leland? Why is she checking in with him? He's not her dad. She decides to skip town. She can skip town. She knows that she's leaving town. She knows that she's going to be in the wind. She knows Fisk isn't going to be able to get her. Why does she need to talk to Leland? There's no reason for it except to inform the audience. And it's so, and I mean, the thing is, sometimes there are moments like that. Like sometimes you just got to, you know, as a writer, you just got to put your head down, get the expository stuff done. It has to be in there, you know? Um, And if you do, you find a way to make it good. You get a good character moment. You get some conflict in there. You do something, right, to make it good. This is such a patchwork scene, Mm -hmm. and it's dreadful. And when she walks away, you know, with all the the Chinese wisdom and whatever, I'm like, oh, my God. Like, no. Yeah. I'm starting to – I really like Gao, and I think she's legitimately threatening a lot. Yeah. But it does – start to look like when she's talking to a white man, she's falling yeah. into that magical person of color trope she also. Is. So she is. like I'm thinking and back with her and Wilson and I'm just yeah. not loving it. I mean, if you have her coming after Leland, I just lost all my hair heroin because you guys can't keep your shit together. Like yeah. if she came after him and was like, I'm going to kill you. Although if she did, she would kill him because she's gal. Right. But right. like, honestly, like um, I, there's nothing in this scene that makes any sense and it's it's so incredibly bad and then it did it just pissed me off because again gal in that moment she's all about fisk she's all about leland you know she's like here's the thing that we're doing this is the plan what's going instead of being like i just lost all my heroin asshole how are you going to make this up to me before I have you killed? You know? I really like how philosophical and chill she is about losing all her stuff, though. Like, I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, that is 
no. That is a legitimately like. You don't go into illegal stuff like this if you don't care about the money. Well, right. That is the only reason why you She's part of the meta plot, Lonnie. Yeah. I mean. But then when she's having that conversation with, uh, with Matt. Where or with him as Daredevil, where he's like, "You blinded these people." No, they blinded themselves. You took away their faith. Like that whole argument, I was like, "Okay, that's fascinating." Tell me more. Please, yeah. please explain that. Please take the time away from this exposition and give me that <laughs> exposition because I want to <laughs> yeah. know how you made people blind themselves. How that is valuable to you in your heroin business. Um, how how their faith in what makes them do this and pack heroin for you. How is that a religious experience? What is going on here? I wanted to know that whole thing. And I was actually kind of hoping that maybe like, cause it didn't seem to make any sense. Maybe I missed something. It didn't make any sense to me in the episode itself. Is there anything in the comic books that explains that? Um, I feel like, okay, I can answer that question, but I'll have to do it really simply. Cause otherwise I'll yes. be talking about Netflix spoilers. Okay. Okay. okay? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. no, Okay. There. There's the short version. <laughs> no. Because what they do with the name redacted in yes. these series is so wildly off book from what okay. name redacted is up to in the comics okay. that, yeah, no, no. All right. Okay. Well, uh, I think that's pretty much it for the ones we leave behind. Not a great episode. Some some really weird stuff going on there. And now we can move into the final episode, Daredevil. In Daredevil, we open with Ben's funeral and Doris, in yet another episode of Convenient Lucidity, tells Karen how much Ben liked her and that it wasn't her fault that Ben died, which means Doris obviously has not watched the show. Matt also feels responsible for Ben's death and he and Karen have a guilt party, which quickly turns into a dance around the lies each of them are keeping from each other. Karen wonders what will happen if Fisk finds out that she was with Ben when they spoke to Marlene, but she knows what will happen because it already happened. Someone will try to kill her. She doesn't tell Matt this, however. Matt says he'll keep her safe, just like he promised, but he doesn't tell her that he'll be able to keep her safe because he's the masked man. Wilson figures out what Leland's been up to, and Leland confesses the whole thing, blaming the woman for Fisk's erratic behavior. But whatever. Bygones. He tells Fisk he's going to quit the game and take half of Fisk's assets with him. And Wilson will let him because Leland has Hoffman. And if he doesn't check in every 24 hours, Hoffman will tell his story and Fisk will lose everything. Fisk attacks Leland, and Leland seems to think that just because he's never been in a scene with Karen Page, Fisk won't kill him. Well, bad news! Fisk throws him down an elevator shaft and commands his lackey to find Hoffman and kill him. Foggy goes to visit Matt while he's at the gym, and they argue about how to deal with Fisk. Foggy wants to go after him with the law. Matt wants to go after him with Daredevil. They compromise and do both. They go to Brett, their friend on the force, who doesn't give them much, but some dirty cops walk by talking about Owsley wanting to find Hoffman, and they know that they've got to find him first. They have a strategy session with Karen, and Matt is even more convinced that he has to put on the mask and go to fetch Hoffman himself. He gets there just in time, taking out a bunch of dirty cops who are about to shoot Hoffman in the head, and then he sits down to have a chat with Hoffman. He can either go public or Fisk will kill him. He also suggests some trustworthy lawyers who can represent him. Once again proving Matt's not the best with secret identities. 
Hoffman hires Nelson and Murdoch and confesses all to the police. Because there's only one cop in New York City who isn't dirty, the FBI comes in and clears out the place, grabbing everyone who ever worked for Fisk. However, they wait to grab Fisk until last, so he has time to give Vanessa instructions and ask her to marry him before they drag him off to jail. As romantic gestures go, it probably beats proposing at a car wash, but isn't quite as good as hiring a flash mob in the middle of Times Square. The FBI grabs Fisk, and Matt, Karen, and Foggy celebrate at Nelson and Murdoch, thinking they've won and it's over. But there's still another 20 minutes to go in the show, so the celebration's a bit premature. While being carted away in an FBI transport vehicle, Fisk tells a Bible story about a traveler and a priest and a Levite and a Samaritan. Despite the potential for this moment to be super cheesy, it's actually pretty good. The FBI transport is attacked with absolutely no subtlety, and Fisk is rescued and swapped in and out of different trucks in a vehicular shell game that no one can follow, except Daredevil, because he can hear everything in the city, and he has a shiny new suit that can deflect a knife and some cool new batons, so it's on. Just as Wilson is about to be delivered to a rooftop helicopter and his beloved Vanessa, Daredevil attacks the truck and takes out his guys. Fisk runs away, but Daredevil finds him in an alley, and Fisk starts screaming, which is usually a sign that somebody's gonna die bloody. The two fight, and Fisk's feral rage is almost a match for Daredevil's athleticism and fancy new suit. Just as he's about to pound Daredevil's face into the dust, he starts talking about the city, and Daredevil pulls it out and beats the hell out of Fisk. Just as he knocks Fisk out, Brett shows up and pulls a gun on him, but since Daredevil just delivered Wilson Fisk, Brett lets him go. On a rooftop in Manhattan, Vanessa gets the news that Fisk won't be coming, and she hops into the helicopter because, hey, free helicopter ride. Outside the office building, Matt, Foggy, and Karen put up the Nelson and Murdoch sign, and everyone is pals again. Daredevil was written and directed by Stephen S. DeKnight. Okay, so let's talk about the suit. Let's start with the suit. Okay. (laughs) What do you think about the suit? It's above average. It's above average. Here's the okay. biggest problem with the suit. What? Where the hell were you in episode three, suit? It is so <laughs> well, stupid. Melvin wasn't there. It is needless. Oh, we could. <laughs> All right, fine. Fair enough. Yes, you can move Melvin up too. <laughs> needless for mm-hmm. us to wait 13 episodes on a show called Daredevil for him to show up wearing a Daredevil costume and actually called Daredevil. It's just dumb. And it's because Netflix at this time was embarrassed that they were making a superhero show and didn't want to put it too much on the label when they really should have because it's a damn superhero show. But I like the suit. Okay. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's probably not the response you were expecting. How do you feel about the suit, Lonnie? I love the suit. The suit is great. I love. Okay. So here's the thing. Now, I completely understand your investment. I understand what the suit means to superheroes. Like as a genre, I get that whole thing. I love the suit coming out at the end. I love that here he is, this kind of ragtag. He's just sort of putting it together, but he meets this guy who has these abilities to make this suit. And then in the finale, he completely embraces his identity. Like he's been fighting this identity the whole time. And in the finale, he's like, all right, fine. You want me to be a badass? 
I'm going to be a badass. I'm going to embrace the whole devil thing. Like he didn't call himself a devil. Like he has sort of picked it up. But I mean, like the devil of hell's kitchen, like other people named him that. And he went in and embraced this idea of this dark side, this bad side. But he's been fighting that the whole time. When he puts on that suit, it shows him embracing that identity and saying, all right, I'm going to be a devil. I'm not going to have this conflict anymore. This is who I am. This is what I am. I'm not going to pretend I'm anything else. And he has little devil horns on it. Like he has embraced this identity. Yeah. Okay. Except in this moment that he supposedly embraces the devil with the suit, he is doing something that is uncomplicated and 100% heroic. Yes. He should have accepted that identity when he was going to murder Fisk, which never really materialized. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. that's when he should have been like, that's it. There's a suit. Now, that means you've got to rewrite some stuff with Melvin and a bunch of other things. I get it. Right. But I'm just saying, this is such a show about dual identity in Matt and in Fisk, frankly. Mm -hmm. But how do we make this explicit in superhero stories? With costumed identities. And sure, sure, he's wearing a bunch of black whoop-de-doo. I I just... (laughs) If you're going to do it, do it. And I know why they didn't. Like, this Uh is enough years ago, and they weren't Uh sure what they were doing. But we are going to see that the other people in the Netflix part of the MCU are very clearly not costumed heroes. Yes. Like, by Mm -hmm. their choice. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, it's a little more subtextual with Luke Cage. We'll get to it. But he is not putting on a costume, per se. Mm -hmm. Okay? He is not two different identities in the way that that Matt is. Again, Mm -hmm. we'll get to Luke Cage. He is a liminal space between Jessica Jones, who's like, that's all stupid bullshit, I'm not doing it, and Daredevil, who's like, black outfit, woo! Yeah. There's just no reason not to own it. I feel like thematically it would have made more sense, you know, roughly the midpoint. Mm Mm-hmm. I just, yeah. Also, it's awesome. Why did we not get to see more of it? Right. Yeah, no, that's true. I think that, yeah, for me, because of, of the love of that, that struggle with his identity and that whole story, like there's, and there's a big moment, like I wanted to see him put on the suit for the first time. I wanted to see that moment sort of explicitly stated that what it means to put on the suit. Now that's something that we did miss. He just Mm. shows up in it. Like, you know, instead of seeing him have the suit, put the suit on. And yeah, I think that if you bring him the suit earlier, but he doesn't wear it. Sure. Like, to me, I would have liked that. You know? Yeah. I would have liked that. I think that would have. So we have, I think what we have here is this incredible potential for this identity story to really hit all the, all the points. And it completely fails. It's a ping pong ball. That's not hitting any bumpers. You know, yeah. it's just there. So, um, so I think that like, I, I like what it could have been, you know, I like the potential for what it could have been. I also understand your frustration that it wasn't there sooner. You know, that this wasn't something that we built up to. I think I think the suit is a big deal. And I, you know, and I think I just wish we'd ha- we put more significance and weight on that and what it means to wear the suit and what it means to order a suit with devil horns. I mean, come on. He's yeah. embracing. You ask for that stuff. That's extra. That doesn't come standard on any superhero <laughs> costume. If yes. you want devil horns, you've got to ask for it and pay the extra price, right? It's true. Um, that is an upgrade, right? Also, I believe that they get Sirius XM radio as well. So, I mean, that's, that's you know. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, so I really, I liked it. I liked it more for its potential than the actual way it was executed. Yes. And I completely see your point that it should have been, it should have been a bigger deal. It should have been a bigger deal. And the way that they treat the suit also, 
factors into that I don't love the big ending of the show either. Mm -hmm. This is an action show with ostensibly a superhero in it, which means it's got to end with a fist fight. It really does. Mm -hmm. At the same time, Fisk is already beaten. Yeah. Right. Even if he gets away, he's not winning because he has failed at his goal of remaking Hell's Kitchen in his image. And he's going to have to be on the run. I mean, granted, he'll be on the run on a nice island. Yeah, with a bajillion dollars in Vanessa. But still, he's exactly. not. He's not happy. Yeah. He, he's yeah. lost. Even getting away, he has lost. Now, I, that doesn't yeah. mean I want him to get away. What right. I want to see is I want to see Daredevil show up in his suit owning his identity and beat nine shades of shit out of him with no return from Fisk because the fact that Fisk gives as good as he does is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It makes no sense. Here's the thing though. We spend this whole season. I haven't killed anybody yet. I haven't killed anybody yet. I haven't killed anybody yet. And then he kills somebody, but it's self-defense. So he's, I haven't killed anybody yet. Right. We still hit that (laughs) thing throughout the whole thing. We're like, you know, so we go through all of that for this big moment. And he still doesn't kill anybody. Like, why are we hitting that gong so hard? We could have spent that money or that time on the identity, the daredevil identity and that conflict. Why set up this conflict of I haven't killed anybody yet, but I want to. And then he doesn't. Like, even if it was something where he was going to kill him, but as soon as he knocked Fisk out, he was done. You know, like if Brett was the one that stopped him, like if he was this close, he was going to kill this guy and he didn't do it. You know, I mean. Right. This is an uncomplicated, entirely heroic win. Yeah. Which feels very at odds with the rest of the show. And if they wanted to give that to me, then let me spin this back into a little more of my diatribe about the suit. Let him put on the suit when he says, that's it. I'm going to go murder him and then change your mind. Yes. No. Let us know. You decided to be the devil. And when you got there and stared it in the face, you decided to be the daredevil instead. And we need to see that moment. We need to see that conflict within him. We need to see that choice he makes. We need to see if it's a choice, if he was going to do it, but then Brett shows up and he just doesn't because he's, you know, sitting there in front of a cop, you know, or whatever. Like that something happens that stops him from doing it. Like this is, there's so much here that's so good and so wasted. There's, There's power left on the table in this story. And it's a little disappointing, you know? I mean, I got to say. I like, really like this season. <laughs> yeah, I like it. There's a lot of it that I like. I just feel like there's so much potential. And there's stuff that they built. You know, like they built this yes. whole thing. And then they're like, look, I built it. But don't nobody sit on it. Like, it's you know, like, why would you build it and not use it? Why would you spend the whole season building up this conflict between his his sense of who he is as a human and who he is as the devil and not have the moment where he chooses to put on the suit. Why would you have him talk the whole season about how I haven't killed anybody yet, I haven't killed anybody yet, and not have him face that choice down at the end? You know, like, yeah. this, is a, this is an internal conflict. This is Matt versus himself. At the end, you know, that's the battle he's waging, and we don't see it. I mean, the alternate way, the kind of the way that I was was talking about is that yeah. that happens at the midpoint. Yeah. And so and so now it's like, well, I was going to attack the problem in this way, but I have decided that that way will not work. However, I now have a new outfit and a new outlook on life. How right. do I integrate that into the final act of this story? Right. There's that's the thing. There's just a bunch of different ways that are yeah. more thematically on point than what we Absolutely. get. 
up to and including he should have shown up and just like Fisk is like, all right, let's do this fisticuffs business. And like two hits, he hits Fisk, Fisk, Fisk hits the ground. What I would have loved, uh, what I would have really loved to see is that we have this athleticism in Matt, right? We have his ability, like he can hit really hard, but you have like this feral rage in Wilson and all he has to do is, you know, get Wilson to come at him and then dart out of the way. Like he can move fast. He's agile. He can duck those punches to the point where you have Wilson basically taking himself out with his own rage. And then Matt is learning to hold back and avoid it. And like, that's what brings Wilson down. Like it it could, there's so many different things you could have done with this. So many different things, depending on what it is in the story that you want to tell, you know, and if we want Matt to have a light ending or a dark ending, like you can go either way and make that work and make it work really well. I think a dark ending would have been better. I think seeing him struggle with all this stuff and then have him really be the devil, have him really like, how, how are you better than me is the last thing that Wilson says as Matt breaks his neck, you know? Um, and you have Matt in a situation where that's what he has to do, you know? Yeah. Um, so well, you I know mean, you're not going to do that because we don't waste Vincent D'Onofrio, I'm afraid. Yeah, wasting Vincent D'Onofrio is a bad thing. So, I mean, I get it. Like, But even if you're going to have him live, like you've got to have that moment for Matt. And we just missed it. So, um, so I think that that was a real disappointment. I, I have to talk to you about I Am the Ill Intent. Yeah. Right? Because this is exactly the kind of thing that I would ordinarily hate. It, it, it lays down on the Bible to be this whole thing of like, you know, mystical understanding, but yet it's used by the bad guy and he's telling this whole parable. Um, and the Samaritan and the Levite and the priest and the everything and the traveler, this whole thing, he's telling this whole story. And during the story, I'm like, okay, whatever, blah, 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 gas bag. Then at the end, when he says, I am the ill intent. Like for me, and this is why I keep talking about the, <laughs> I am the one who knocks. Like I keep talking about, about um, uh, Walter White and Breaking Bad because that scene, I am the one who knocks is so powerful to me. And I am the ill intent. And especially in a story that ties so deeply into identity, like I loved it, but I am afraid it's truly, truly terrible. I mean, I love it anyway. What did you think? No, I really like that on a lot of levels. That is a level of melodrama that I would like to see more from my villains in superhero stuff. Yeah. Um, Just all over the place, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, Villains being the biggest weak link in the MCU, like as a whole, the villains are the the biggest weak link. I would really Mm -hmm. like to see this kind of like just ratcheted to 11 melodrama. And it's not going to work all the time. But A, you've got Vincent D'Onofrio. He's done it right once or twice in this series, let alone in other things. And imagine, you know, kind of going back to uh, we talked about giving some of Wesley's yeah, speeches yes. to mm-hmm. Wilson, and then that this yes. is the thing. Now, and here's the other part that I love, and why I think it actually is brilliant. You don't need mm-hmm. to judge yourself for this one. Um, the ill intent is not a character in the Good Samaritan. Yeah, no, it's not. He has developed a new hermeneutic that that yeah. shows in this story who he is, who Wilson Fisk is in the story, and it is fantastic. I I thought I was the Good Samaritan. Um, I'm not even the self righteous priest. I'm not even the self interested Levite. 
Yeah. I am the robbers that beset him before the story even started. No, he's the thing that inspires the robbers. Yes. Like, that's the thing. Like, he is identifying with what the essence, you know, metaphorically of the devil is, right? I've got yeah. the devil in yes. me, right? Yes, I am the you faceless know, evil. Deal with I it. Am, I am the thing that lights that part of other people. Like, and also making that connection that he is the thing, like, this is the stuff that, that Matt has within him that he's afraid of. Yes. Right? And yes. here we have this inspiration to evil, you know, that Matt's so afraid of and that he and that Wilson Fisk is embracing. I am the ill intent. Like, I, I love that. It's I, so good. It's, it's it would be so so good if then we see that ill intent in Matt as he's planning on killing this guy. Like I don't know, there's just so much there. So much was left on the table with mm-hmm. something that could have been so incredibly good. But when he says I am the ill intent, and I mean honestly, like you know, when writers go to like these Bible stories and all this kind of like, had it been had he done anything else with that Good Samaritan story, I would have been like, oh God, shut up, whatever, you know. <laughs> But when he says, I am the ill intent, I'm like, yes, yes, that's what I want. I want identity. I want you to tell me what you are. Like that is so crunchy and fun and interesting. And, you know, I thought I was the good Samaritan. I'm not. I'm. I love it. I love it so much. No, so, it's I mean, really again, great. It's identity really great. stories always get me. I love that. That's always what I'm talking about in all of these episodes um, of Listen Up, A Holes. I think I brought up identity at least once every episode. I love it. No, it's um, it's perfect for superhero yeah. stories, and the fact yeah. that they have been able to look at it with so many different heroes through so many different facets, and then yeah. somebody finally looks at it with one of the villains. Yes. And and nails no, it great. despite the fact that we are turning the knob to 11. I know. It's nuts. I would ordinarily hate that. I hate that kind of melodrama. I hate that kind of nonsense. Vincent D'Onofrio sold it. I mean, he sold it. You know, I bought that thing at a 50% markup. I was so <laughs> on board with that, you know. Um, and he was just wonderful in it. And I think this is the thing that frustrates me the most about the ending of this. The reason why I'm so annoyed is because, A, I really like Daredevil. Yes. I thought there's some great stuff going on here. There's really great stuff. The other thing is that it's not that it didn't occur to them and that they just didn't do it. They did it 80% of the way and then left the other 20% to like wander off and smell flowers or something. I don't even know what they were doing. So the fact that they had it all right there and they have him telling his identity story in this wonderful moment, you know? Oh god. It's just too much. This is the beginning of a refrain that you will hear from me often on these Netflix series, yes. which is mm-hmm. I really wish that they would just hire a novelist uh-huh. To come in and think about this thing as a unified whole with chapters. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. if you do that well, each chapter has its own, you know, beginning, middle and end and its own version of the bigger story question and all that stuff. Yep. But then you have somebody come in and give it an eye that's like, let's pull this together. Let's tie this together. You're you're three quarters of the way there. Let's go ahead and finish it. Yeah. Um, well, the big picture thing. And the thing is, like, we're seeing a lot of that in these stories. They're telling stories like yes. they know that they've got a bad guy. It really is. A season of television is basically like a novel, you know, with all those little chapters, with all those little stories kind of telling that story. So um, I, I think that's really where the analog is. And and you can think that way. And a lot of these writers and these people who are telling these, these you know, the showrunners that are telling these stories in this way, in this new way. Well, I mean, new 20 years, but like, you know, relatively new. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they really do get it. Like on some level, they've been building this thing all along. Like they were almost, they had it in their hands and then they just didn't do anything with it. And I find that almost more frustrating than not knowing enough to do it in the first place. Well, that's without it being shade cast at television writers. I really think that's the difference between television writers and someone who thinks in terms of novels. It's not that they're not capable. They're storytellers. They understand it. Yeah. But tying it together into this, you know, 13-chapter package is a new challenge for television. Except it's not for these people. These people worked on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. They sat at Joss Whedon's knee. And, I mean, granted, Joss Whedon is not the, you know, like, he's he's a problematic figure. Like, I'm not going to I'm not gonna hero-worship Joss Whedon. But when it comes to knowing how to, as a storyteller, knowing how to structure these stories, he was one of the first people to do this. They trained with the guy who did this, you know, and, um, and did it effectively. And so, like, if it wasn't these guys, if it wasn't Drew Goddard, if it wasn't Stephen S. Knight who wrote this, also worked on Buffy, Doug Petrie worked on Buffy, like, all of these people, you know, they know. They know. They've done this before, you know. They were trained in this. So, like, I don't... It's such a missed opportunity. It is such a missed opportunity. And it's so, and what they did was so great and it built it up so great. I don't know. I'm finding it frustrating, but I'm going on and on and on about this. And this is running long. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? There were a couple of things, right? So we have a few questions that we brought up at the beginning that we can put to bed now, I think. Mm-hmm. We discussed at the beginning the idea of a flashback or a series of flashbacks filling the space that an origin story normally would. Mm-hmm. Now that we're at the end, I will say what I think about it, which is broadly, I think it's a better way to go mm-hmm. on a show like this, except I'll also point out that this season, because of the way they play out the identity issues in the costume, mm-hmm. this whole series is still an origin for Daredevil. So if they chose to do the flashbacks instead of an origin, they still screwed up. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I don't like the flashbacks. Obviously, I'm not a big fan. Flashbacks, I think, have very specific requirements in order for them to really work well as a literary narrative device. Um, And this is absolutely an origin story of Daredevil. And if we'd done a better job with his identity and his, you know, struggling with that, then I think we would have, this would have been a really, really great example of a fantastic origin story. Um, So I I think that, I think that it's, it's very, very close. It's, it's, should have been a little bit something more with that but um but yeah i i could kill almost all the flashbacks and be perfectly happy so that probably tells me your answer to one of our other points which is the various Mm -hmm. and sundry daddy issues yes since they are largely revealed in the flashbacks now Mm -hmm. i am going to disagree with you i I, they're not always used to their greatest effect within the Mm -hmm. the specific episode but i see i really feel like i see what they were trying to do with giving us some personality baselines for Matt in Mm -hmm. Jack and Stick and also for Wilson in his dad and his mom. Mm -hmm. Okay. And and maybe if I stretch it real far, Karen with Ben. Mm -hmm. Right. So I actually think these are very masterfully handled daddy issues that I wish were integrated into the whole better. Yeah. I, it's not about, I don't know. I just don't think it's really about that. I think that we use these daddy issues as a way of kind of explaining where um, Matt and Wilson come from. 
mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. and giving them kind of like a similar reflex reflexiveness on each other, reflectiveness on each other. Um, but we don't see it through. We don't do anything with it. You know, we kind of really. take too long, right? Like that's and we don't need it. I don't think we need it. Well, I really like them as opposite numbers yeah. of one another, but I need to be seeing that from jump instead of many episodes yes. in i feel right and and i i want the identity story to be the opposite number yes. for them and we yes. see them both embrace it at the same time like that would have been really really cool yeah um but yeah like i think that like the daddy issues in and of themselves used well i think i would have been like all right fair enough but because they they were both annoying you know used a crappy narrative device in order to get them and then didn't do anything with them that all together is like I, I just don't think that the the time and the real estate that we spent in these 13 episodes on developing those daddy issues pay off for as much weight and time that they took you know uh, so for me ugh, not so much we may disagree on how worth it they would have been to fix but we can definitely yes. agree on that they do not yes. land as hard as they should based on the amount of time they're given Mm-hmm. yeah All right, well, that's getting us real close to the end of Daredevil. Let's put the final nail in its coffin. Lonnie, tell me about your favorite part. Oh, God, I am the ill intent. I don't know if I gave that away. Um, (laughs) If any of you could have guessed. Well, mine's pretty guessable, too, so don't feel too bad about it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but honestly, I am the ill intent. I think it's not only my favorite part of this run of episodes, but the entire season. For me, that was such a high point, and I really, really liked it. And I'm still not sure it's not terrible, but I'm just going to embrace it anyway. <laughs> so what about you? Let me let me guess. No, I'm not going to guess because it's right in front of me. You go ahead and tell me what your favorite part is. <laughs> Finally, the goddamn suit already. Right. Finally, he's Daredevil. Finally, Daredevil shows up in his own damn show. Yes, yes. It's about damn time. <laughs> If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. Lonnie is at Lonnie Diane Rich, and I am at Joshua Unruh. And the hashtag is listen up, a-holes. Both Chipperish Media and Pulp Diction Productions are entirely supported by listeners like you, who are being called to summon the better angels of your nature. Show your support by visiting our Patreon pages or by leaving a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for more people to find us and join in the conversation. The links to Apple Podcasts and both our Patreon pages are easy to find right there in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Guardians of the Galaxy 1 with our special guest, Rob Hyrett, host of Chipperish Media's new Star Wars podcast, Metaphors Be With You. Until then, we are the ill intent who set upon the Traveler on a road that he should not have been on. God, I write this stuff in like 30 seconds. <laughs> and you read it. Like you were born to it. I don't know how you do that. Like nobody else. Every time I write anything for anybody else, they're always like, what the fuck is this? And you just like run with it and make it better. It's cracking me up. All right. Anyway, you may recall that the first time I had a little trouble, I figured it out. I cracked the case. It is so funny because I look at it. I'm like, he's not going to read that, right? He's not going to know what the hell I'm talking about. None of it is clear. You just nailed it. All right. That's funny. All right. Anyway. And you made it funnier. So now I got to stop laughing. All right. I was really shocked with this farm upstate. I was like, my dog. <laughs> All right. Just, I'm sorry. I, I really wanted to interject like three times. So I'm taking a deep <laughs> breath. Because again, so not a detective. How does he even know what rare, 
Rare fabric. Clothes are made of fabric? He's a lawyer. <laughs> That's not... Okay, we're not doing that again. Seriously. Right. When I told Andrea about that conversation, she was like, oh, yeah, I can't detect shit. So... <laughs> Daredevil gets the workers out of the burning warehouse, and his cop friend Brett, who doesn't recognize him with that mask on and everything. Nope, we're not doing this. Hold on. <laughs> I did read this earlier, and I forgot to come back and change it. No, he's got something covering his eyes. You can't recognize people. Nope, I'm doing it in the. T- I'm not. Clark I'm not Kent arguing with you off glasses. mic. This is happening. All right. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> 